Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. So tax risk insurance has been around, I think, as a product for a little over 10 years, maybe slightly more. But I think over the last two or three years, it's really exploded. And part of that is is, is driven off the back of M&A and warranty indemnity insurance, that it's you know, warranty indemnity insurance is there to cover unknown risks, whereas the specific tax risk insurance policy is to cover an identified tax risk. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC. And in each episode, I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week, we'll be discussing tax liability insurance. So it's a little bit insurance and a little bit tax. And therefore, in an insurance covered first, I have a co-host, my colleague Alice Kemp, who hosts our sister podcast, Taxing Matters. So today is a sort of insurance taxing matters covered hybrid. So welcome, Alice. Hello, lovely to be here. And our guest is Giles Hambly. Giles went to school in Geelong, which is just about the southernmost point of mainland Australia and home to the second oldest Aussie Rules Club. He started his working life in Sydney and then in 2016 he moved to London where he worked as a tax specialist for KPMG, followed by Norton Rose Fulbright. And at the beginning of this year, he moved to Brokers Gallagher, where he is a specialist tax risk insurance broker, which is what we're going to be discussing today, subject to the disclaimer that Giles's comments will represent his own personal views rather than those of Gallagher. So Giles, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Peter and Alice, for having me. Now, your background is tax. So what is it that tempted you into the world of insurance and how are you finding it so far? Probably about a year and a half worth of work with Norton Rose. A lot of that was spent advising insurers on warranty indemnity insurance and essentially the tax portion of of those policies. And so that was what kind of introduced me into the weird and wonderful world of insurance. And then I started to learn about things like specific risk insurance and in this case, specific tax risk insurance. And I thought it was a a fairly new area and there was a lot of interest in it. It's becoming sort of a a pretty big growth area for corporates, for private equity houses. So it was an attraction for me to essentially use the tax experience I had had from being an advisor and being a lawyer in, I think, more of a a commercial sense where you're, you're essentially looking to provide a solution for a client for an upfront premium as opposed to advising them on what actually the consequences of what they're doing are. Great. So let's just jump right in. Sure. Tax liability insurance. What is it? So essentially tax liability insurance is there to cover the risk of a successful challenge from a tax authority for a position that say a company or an individual or a fund has taken. And essentially what that means is if you undertake a transaction or you sell a product in a certain way or just general tax planning, for example, there are rules whereby you need to meet certain thresholds to say qualify for an exemption, capital gains exemption, corporate tax exemptions, VAT exemptions, and so forth. Those rules are highly complex. And in many cases, there are uncertainties about how it applies to your fact pattern. And so typically what you would do is you would go and get advice from a tax advisor, tax lawyer, who would tell you, yes, we agree with the position you're taking. Um, It should be okay. And the tax authorities should agree as well. However, in many cases, 
that isn't sort of a guarantee. There's still a low risk that maybe the tax authorities will disagree with the position you've taken. So what a tax liability insurance policy is looking to do is looking to cover those taxes, the related interests and penalties. From an insurance perspective, it's, you know, insurance is there to cover risk and the, and the risk of something bad happening. And often for us non-tax people, we think of tax as something which is a certainty. And so the risk element, as I understand it from what you're saying, the, the risk element for those being insured is that there is a transaction going ahead which will generate some level of tax, but it's not necessarily clear what the taxes are, what the level of the taxes are. And, and, and that's the risk element that is in effect being insured. Yeah, essentially that's right, Peter. It's it, it's looking, we, we call it sort of a tax uncertainty insurance policy. For example, in a substantial shareholding exemption test, which, which is essentially that capital gains exemption, you need to have less than 20% of, of non-trading activities. Now, you know, essentially what does that mean? HMRC guidance provides a whole different way, sort of factors of how you measure that, what that entails. But it's also not clear from the case law what that really specifically means as a pound-for-pound pound basis or a factor-by-factor factor basis. And in that sense, you've got an uncertainty there. And as a result of that uncertainty, you could have a significant tax exposure that was unintended and an exposure that essentially would have prevented you from doing the deal in the first place. So thinking about that scope of cover, what is included and what isn't included? So it's the tax that you weren't expecting to pay, if it's capital gains tax, if it's corporate tax, VAT, what have you, it's related interests and penalties. So typically you will have to pay interest year on year for a tax exposure. Then you have things like penalties and penalties come in where say, if the authority is able to show that you were careless in how you came to those conclusions and your filing position, when you undertook that transaction, and the application of the law that you used, was it careless? If it was careless, then you can have a penalty for that. And those penalties can range anywhere from sort of 30% to 100% for, say, deliberate conduct. And so very easily, you could double your exposure without a huge amount of effort. Then there's the other side, which is defense costs. Typically, what you would have is you would have the cost of having to defend the inquiry. So engage with HMRC and essentially work your way up through the courts. And that has significant cost elements to doing that. You've mentioned there a couple of times HMRC. Is it just limited to UK-based taxes or is it global? It's global. It it really is. It's a very much a global multi-jurisdictional product. We see risks from all over the globe, US, Canada, South America, say Chile and Argentina, maybe not so much Brazil, but (laughs) Southeast Asia is very common. Australasia, Australia and New Zealand tax risks are very, very popular in the UK market. European tax risks are are very, very common, Eastern European risks. There is a solution for a lot of these risks. So yes, it is very much a global product. I'm very keen to go through some of the practicalities of this to try and put it in context. If we can kind of work through an example, um, starting at the very beginning and then uh, working out how insurance is, uh, how it fits in, at what point insurance is considered, what the processes are between obviously the insured and insurers. So let's, I mean, I don't know, what's a typical transaction where tax liability is obtained? Um, a merger, an acquisition, something like that? Yeah, sure. Mergers and acquisitions is a very, uh, very common space. And, and typically what you will have 
is as part of the due diligence process, which is undertaken by the buyer, they will be kicking the tire, so to speak, on the business that they're looking to acquire. And as part of that due diligence process, a whole bunch of different risks will be identified and these will be historic risks or operational risks. And one section of that, an important section, is the tax section and where you have tax risks. And they may have historic risks, so say, Maybe they've got VAT risk, maybe they've got employment tax risks, corporate tax risks. And so typically, if those have been identified, they will usually be quantified. So they will work out or the advisor who's providing the due diligence will determine what they think the level of exposure is going to be. So how much is the risk going to cost and what do they rate the risk at? Is there a low risk of it crystallizing, medium, high? And typically what insurer will look to cover is your low to medium type risks. And I mean, I suppose from a process perspective, what you would do is you would see the tax risk. Ideally, there's some supporting analysis for why it is, say, low or medium and how they were able to quantify the risk. That information would be provided to a group of insurers, say, I mean, there's 11 in the market that we deal with regularly and to the extent that they have interest in that particular risk, we would approach those markets and essentially look for indicative terms and pricing. And, and that's... Sorry, Josh, can I just chip in at that point? Because presumably these transactions are highly confidential. Sure. And you can't just go off to brokers, insurers, 11 separate insurers and say, aha, this price sensitive information is, is released to you. So how's that protected? Typically, there is a very strong NDA process. So a broker will look to sign an NDA with clients to the extent that they require it for their processes, whether it's confidential in an M&A process or even outside of an M&A process, whether it's, it's commercially sensitive information, that a client would then essentially sign an NDA directly with the insurer or there'd be, say, a joined letter process with the broker and the insurer to ensure that the confidentiality trail extended the whole way to the insurer and their underwriting counsel to the extent that they want to go and reach out to their lawyers and say, what do you think about this risk? Can you give us a view? And so the confidentiality trail basically stays or the chain stays intact the whole way through. And, and that's, that's a quite a common process. Sorry, I think I interrupted you. I think you're saying that you were going to these 11 insurers and getting rates and prices for the insurance. Sure. So yes, yeah. the insurers would then look to provide essentially terms. So what would the terms of the coverage be? How broad, essentially how broad is the coverage going to be? Is it going to cover that particular risk? Or are there a bunch of different tests that could create exposures under a number of different risks? And, and is the policy looking to cover all of that or, or, or a specific issue? And then what is the pricing? What is it actually going to cost, which we call the premium? What is, what is that going to cost to get the coverage? And of course, ideally, you have a risk that a number of insurers are interested in so that they can compete. And, you know, out of the 10 or 11 insurers that we deal with regularly, they all have different appetites of the types of risks that they want to see, maybe the types of jurisdictions that they're comfortable with, the size of risks. Some really large insurers may be less interested in your lower exposure risk than, than say, others. So there's a really important point there around the broker's knowledge, understanding the different markets, understanding uh, what are the different trends and the appetites for each insurer. And so obviously from that perspective, not wanting to plug myself too much, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> feel free, Giles, feel free, go for it. <laughs> 
I mean, that's that's an important part of the job. It is is being very close to the insurers, being very close to the market. It is it is a fluid market that is constantly evolving. And what was very popular, say last month, may become less popular next month. And a part of that will have to do with there's only so much capacity in the market to cover risks. And so it's essentially a case of saying, well, we might have used up a billion to cover a certain type of risk this time. That's as much capacity as we want to use for now. Let's focus on other risks, say, going forward. So those are the kinds of considerations that can come in. And then it's about knowing you know, which insurers have done that and, and in which case maybe you need to uh, approach a different market. Exactly. And I was going to say, what sort of limits of indemnity are we talking about here? You mentioned what well, you just threw out a billion there as though it was like 10 pounds. No, no, no. That's <laughs> How much are we talking about? So typically the range uh, of tax risk insurance is, is 500k to a billion pounds plus. So that that would be the exposure for the risk that they'd be looking to cover typically. You can go less than 500k, but a lot of the insurers have minimum premiums and those minimum premiums are around your 40 to 50K mark. So that being the cost of the insurance policy. There are a couple of insurers that mention that they don't have minimum premiums, but I'd be surprised to see it going much below your sort of 20 to 30K mark. And so, and what sort of rates are we talking about here? Uh, what percentage of the, I don't know, if I was buying a million pounds worth of risk, what sort of rates would I be looking at? Yeah, so typically tax risks go for 1.5 to 6% of the limit. So if your exposure is a million pounds and you're looking to get that full million pounds covered, the cost would be 1.5 to 6% of that. And it basically, it depends on the nature and complexity of the risk as to what the cost will be anywhere between that range of 1.5 to 6%. It also will depend on things like jurisdictions. So you mentioned earlier that there are sort of 10, 11 um, tax liability insurers in the UK market. And of course, these are global policies. So when the insurers are looking at the risk and the reasonableness of the tax position and all of those kind of technical questions, so obviously they're going to consider the relevant tax laws. To what extent is that done from a UK point of view? And to what extent is that done from the local jurisdictions point of view, wherever that tax risk might be? So typically what the insurers will look to do is they will try and put on that jurisdictional hat. If, if the tax risk is a risk that's in Mexico, for example, and maybe it's to do with planning or something like that, um, then they will typically you know, put on their Mexican jurisdictional hat and, and consider it from that perspective because that's the relevant perspective. So they will also look to engage local councils to the extent that they need to. Um, they, they have strong connections with their advisors, whether those say big four advisors or other law firms who have global connections and, and to the extent that they need to reach out to local council to consider a position further, they can do that and, and, and they regularly do that. And does that jurisdictional hat flow through into the risk appetite that's applied to the risks? So, and I think this kind of goes on to the parameters of what you can get covered and what you can't get covered. And typically, tax liability insurance is not there to cover aggressive tax planning or what we call here uh, transactions that are notifiable under avoidance schemes. Those issues are not going to be covered. But what is considered aggressive in, say, from a UK perspective, might not be aggressive in the US or might not be aggressive in Canada or multi-jurisdictionally. So it's really a question of what is considered aggressive in that particular jurisdiction. 
Now, the underwriters are themselves tax experts and therefore they feel uh, comfortable with these issues and, and assessing risk and where they need to get local expertise, they will get local expertise. But, but what happens, let's say a risk eventuates and there is an exposure, what happens then? Um, are insurers obliged to just pay up and allow the insured to contest the tax if they want to do so? Or, or do insurers have a control clause whereby they can make decisions about whether the tax is challenged or not? So typically that'll be part of negotiating policy and the parameters of the policy. In certain situations, you may have things called advanced tax payments where they need to be paid immediately and then you essentially pay now, argue later. So if you negotiate a policy where you think that's going to be an issue, then you would look to get that put in place so that the insurer is on the hook as and when the advanced tax is due. And, and we've certainly worked on policies where we've done that. What an insurer will generally have as part of their policy is they'll have something called conduct rights or similar to what you're saying with the control clause where they have a say on whether A, the tax is going to be disputed and then kind of how far you need to go to dispute it. So, I mean, they are not looking to say step into the shoes of the insured and conduct the dispute themselves. That would be I'd say a little bit unusual. It's possible, but that's not typically what they'd be looking to do. They'd be looking to basically have reasonable comment and a review right over the plans that the insured's lawyers or tax advisors have. Uh, It's very much done as kind of a team effort. But of course, they will have rights and they will have a say. Does that mean that the insurer might take a view on whether or not ADR might be applicable to this particular type of tax risk? And would they seek to include that in any policy documents? You know, that's a really interesting question. And to be fully transparent, that hasn't come up before. Um, I'm sure to the extent that ADR put the insurer in a better position and effectively put the insured in a better position, it, it could absolutely be included in the policy. And I think that kind of leads on to the point that these policies are bespoke policies. They're not your off-your-shelf type of policy or, oh, I have a share options risk. Oh, I have a VAT risk. Well, let's just pull it off the shelf. One size fits all. It's not. They, they are case-by-case basis and they are designed for that particular risk, for that particular fact pattern. And the beauty of, of these types of policies is that you get to work collaboratively with the insurer to design it. You, know, you have quite a lot of say about how you want it to look, how you want it to be structured. They, they are quite flexible. So I, I think that can result in a very good position for the insured. So that's one of the benefits of having this type of insurance. What other benefits might there be? From a seller's perspective, there's that point about saying, we want to achieve a clean exit. We want to come out of this with, especially if we're already getting the deal insured with warranty indemnity insurance, which is going to cover unknown risk. We, we want a nil recourse structure where we're not going to have to pay out anything. If you've got a problem, if there's a breach warranty or breach of indemnity, you're going to take it up with the insurer. That's the same thing for the specific tax risk. To the extent that they are insurable and you can cover that off, that's great for the seller. From a buyer's perspective, there may be the point that A, they're getting insufficient protection under the the SPA, under the sale purchase agreement, or they may need to satisfy their lenders. Maybe the lenders aren't happy with the protections they're getting under the SPA, so the insurance policy can be used as a way to essentially provide that comfort. Knowing that you've got, say, a Lloyd syndicate in the UK or you've got someone in the US, similar situation, that's standing behind that risk 
and has that capital to be able to provide the comfort, I think is a very important point. The other, I think, areas of interest is if you think outside the M&A context, most corporates will have some form of historical tax risk somewhere down the line. They will need to essentially provide for it or be aware that they may need to pay out at a certain date as long as the exposure stays live and being able to mitigate that risk with an insurance policy. So what we call risk transfer solution is a very attractive option. And I think it's something as we're driving more awareness about the product and what the product can actually do, corporates are starting to think now, this is about managing risk. If you can get a certain level of certainty from your advisors that there is a low risk of this exposure arising, but that doesn't mean there's no risk. And so it's that point of saying, okay, well, we should be okay. But you know, maybe five years down the track, we get some whacking rate tax that we didn't expect to pay. And then we got interest and penalties and you name it, all the other problems. Or for what is effectively cents in the dollar when you think you're 1.5 to 6% premium, paying that as an upfront cost to get the certainty that even if the exposure arises, you can make a claim to the insurer and, and, and that's where it's going to be covered. So I think M&A is a very clear, effective tool and, and it's, it's one that's being utilized more and more, but outside of an M&A context is equally valid and of equal interest just to get that certainty that most businesses want when they're dealing with taxes. And so to be able to get that certainty with that policy, it's, is a, yeah, as I said, a pretty attractive option. I think the critical point for the clients to understand is that it doesn't cost anything to go and get indicative terms and pricing. So if they just want to make an inquiry and and work out whether there is a solution available and what it's going to cost and what it's going to cover, that doesn't cost them anything to do that. And has there been much growth? Have many people been taking that option up? So tax risk insurance has been around, I think, as a product for a little over 10 years, maybe slightly more. But I think over the last two or three years, it's really exploded. And part of that is, is, is driven off the back of M&A and warranty indemnity insurance, that it's you know, warranty indemnity insurance is there to cover unknown risks, whereas the specific tax risk insurance policy is to cover an identified tax risk. And you can plug that gap with this specific policy. So where private equity houses and funds and so forth that are looking to move very quickly, they want very clean negotiations. They, they don't want liabilities hanging over their heads. They want what's called a clean exit. Those sorts of policies have become very popular. So uh, just, just to give it you know, an idea or some stats, I was speaking to some of the insurers not that long ago, maybe a couple of months ago, and they were saying they're seeing regularly 20% year-on-year growth in submissions now that people are becoming aware that you can actually manage it through that insurance policy that they just were not aware of outside of an M&A context. That's, I think, part of one of the big areas of growth that we're going to see and, and we're starting to see now. And what sort of trends are you seeing? The majority of risks that you're seeing at the moment are things typically transactional risks where you're expecting to get an exemption. Maybe you've undertaken a group restructure or you've transferred assets from one side of the company to another side of the group, for example, and you're expecting not to have to pay tax on that because it's all intra-group. Those types of risks are very commonly covered. You see various VAT risks being covered where it's not clear whether you should have been charging VAT on a particular service or a particular product. And, and then you find out later that the interpretation that you used or the application of the rules that you used has been challenged. That's a, a very common type of risk. Withholding tax risks as well are very popular. So 
where there's a question about whether or not you had substance in a particular jurisdiction to be able to get what's called a double tax treaty rate. So let's say UK and France, for example, they have a double tax treaty and you are paying out dividends from your French subsidiary to your UK entity. And, and so that's, that's a very popular area. When you think about things like furlough risks, I mean, that's a new area. Furlough risk, furlough tax risks. I think, Alice, we were talking about this a little while ago. There's umpteen thousand inquiries into to how furlough payments have been taken and grants. And of course, the risks that are associated with that are your employee tax risks, so your PAYE and your national insurance contributions, because those still very much apply to those grants. And you know that can raise significant costs for an employer. And I think... I haven't seen personally many inquiries on that end, but I think that's something that will definitely be a growth area because the rules on that area are quite new. And so there isn't a huge amount of guidance about how to apply them. But where, for example, you've got quite good supporting analysis from your, from the tax advisors, tax lawyers saying, we, we think the position you've taken is, is, is pretty solid. Um, but you still have an exposure because we just don't know how it's going to be interpreted. That's where I think a policy could work quite well. And one final question, substantive question for me is, are there any public policy or ethical issues with this type of insurance? Because obviously, you know, tax is payable by a taxpayer. And are there therefore any issues about the fact that this liability is being shifted from a taxpayer onto insurers? No, I mean, personally, just in brief, no. Um, the, the fact of the matter is that the policy is not looking to, to cover off aggressive practices. It is looking to cover uncertainties in the rules. So where someone is trying to take, essentially achieve a tax advantage where it was not intended by the rules, then, then you're going to find it pretty challenging to get that position insured because the insurers are just not looking to they're not looking to encourage that kind of behavior. They're not looking to backstop that kind of behavior. There needs to be commercial reasoning for what you're doing. There needs to be commercial reasoning for why you're getting the insurance. So from my view of the way HMRC would see it in, in play is that it, it, it's really, it's a commercial point about risk management. One of the key points is the product's been around for the last 10 to 15 years and there haven't been any concerns raised. So HMRC are very much well aware of it. The, the other side of that is that a lot of policies or insurance policies are taken out to cover clearance. So typically you would go to a tax authority to get clearance for a transaction where maybe there's a little bit of uncertainty about how you've done it and you want the tax authority to say, we're happy with what you've done. We, we aren't going to look to challenge this. You're fine. Here's your piece of paper. You know, go on. Because of COVID, there's been huge delays in tax authorities being able to respond quickly for providing clearance, which means that in certain situations and transactions, transactions haven't been able to go ahead because they haven't got the clearance. And then there's concern about who's covering the liability if it goes wrong. That's another area where the insurance policy can come in and say, let's go and get insurance in lieu of getting clearance because the position, the, the insurer is comfortable with the position. And if anything, that's that's a helpful tool for HMRC because that means they, they might get less they might get less applications and, and with you know increasing pressure on resources that's only a good thing and and where it's trying to cover positions that you know are not looking to take advantage of loopholes and not looking to, to create arbitrages i think it's a, it's only a good thing from that perspective so 
no, I, I don't think there are any ethical or, or that kind of policy adverse problems. Finally, Giles, I appreciate that you are, you are new to insurance, but what bit of advice would you give to a young person who might be thinking about a career in insurance? It, it, look, it probably applies to many different positions, but ask lots of questions. Uh, be prepared to, to learn from the other brokers. So if you're in broking, to learn from the other brokers around you, whether or not they're doing your specific type of insurance or maybe they're doing another type of insurance. There's a lot of skills there when it comes to to the social side, to, to the prospecting side, but also how in practice, how it works for the process. And, and w- when you're going to an insurer, what kind of questions are they going to ask? What is that insurer really interested in? What is this insurer really interested in? A lot of that is sort of experiential knowledge that you won't have at the beginning. So it, it really, really helps to be able to, you might understand the problem in theory, but it really helps to be able to ask questions and say, what do you think? How are they going to do this? What do I need to be focusing on? So yeah, ask questions. Giles, that was absolutely magnificent. Thank you so much indeed. And Alice, thank you for co-hosting. That was absolutely wonderful. We must do it again sometime. Absolutely. Lovely to be here. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.